Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. To be a pirate, it almost goes without saying that one must be flamboyant and charismatic, at least if one is the captain of a swashbuckling enterprise. In the pre-Seminole Wars era, along the Gulf Coast, few were as flamboyant as William Augustus Bowles. He was a pirate, a leader, and an organizer. He was a charming con man who earned the ears of leading Seminole and Creek leaders and their bands. This April 1st and 2nd at Three Rivers State Park, the first Pirate and Heritage Festival is being held near the city of Sneeds, Florida. To produce this family-friendly spectacle, the park teamed up with the Jackson County Tourist Development Council, the city of Sneeds, and Dale and Rachel Cox's Two Egg TV. The park overlooks beautiful and appropriately named Lake Seminole. Families will learn the fascinating history of pirates in Sneeds. Who knew, after all? Then they can witness a boat regatta, gaze at the insides of a keelboat, inspect antique firearms and weapons, attend lectures and living history presentations, and see a live living history demonstration. There's even a dress like a pirate contest involved. And of course, the festival brings to life the story of William Augustus Bowles, the lovable rogue with big ambitions for Seminole and Creek Indians. Joining us to promote the event and provide the history behind it is historian Dale Cox. He is author of numerous books on the First Seminole War and the unpleasantness that preceded it in the Florida Panhandle region prior to Spanish cessation of the land to the United States in 1819. Dale Cox, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Well, I'm glad to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Dale, what have you got cooked up for us at Three Rivers State Park? <laughs> It's not just me, but several of us are working together at Three River State Park, which is in Sneeds, Florida. If you don't know where Sneeds is, if you've ever driven I-10 between Tallahassee and Pensacola, as you're zipping along, you will have seen one of those green exit signs that says Sneeds, and that's where Three River State Park is. We are doing a Pirate and Heritage Festival. You have to ask yourself, why are they doing a Pirate Festival away from the coastline? And it's because we are reliving and commemorating the life of William Augustus Bowles, who was quite a character, but he actually spent a lot of his lifetime inland in Northwest Florida. And in fact, in the area where the state park is located. And so that's why, and that's why we're doing it there. And we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about him there. Just who was this guy, Bowles? Well, Bowles was, number one, a really interesting character. Not many people know about him. He had a huge impact in Northwest Florida and on, I guess you could call it the fledgling Seminole people at that time up in this particular area. He was a real thorn in the side of the Muskogee people at that time as well and the Spanish. 
because not many people know about him, and especially young people, but a lot of people know about pirates. They know about Johnny Depp. They know about the Pirates of the Caribbean, and everyone loves a good pirate story. We thought maybe this was a way that we could teach some real history. We could bring a real pirate into this because he was married to the daughter of a very prominent Seminole chief. We thought this was a way we could teach some real American Indian history, teach some real Florida history, and uh, have a little bit of fun with it as well by introducing people to a real pirate of the Caribbean, which is exactly what he was. Me, I'm always up for a good bit of historical adventure. So we thought, hey, Let's introduce some history here, bring some history to life. Let's do a Seminole War before the other Seminole Wars, which is exactly what he was involved in, and maybe bring some people out to see a part of Florida that they may not have seen before. Bowles was not a Native American, although he did marry the chief's daughter. Tell us more about his background. Bowles was born in 1763. He really kind of came into his own during the American Revolution. And then his impact on Florida was from, say, the 1780s up into around 1804 was when he was really rampaging through Florida and along the coastline of Florida. His real claim to fame years were 1799 to 1804, just maybe a decade ahead of the First Seminole War. That was when he commissioned a fleet of privateers that he unleashed into the Gulf, flying the flag of the state of Muskogee. And if you've ever seen seen this, they call it the sun flag of Muskogee, but it had the sun up in the upper left-hand corner of the standard, and it had the cross over the red banner. This is one of the flags that flew over Florida. He commissioned this pirate fleet that he unleashed on the Gulf, and he declared, some people claim he declared himself the director general of Muskogee, but the director general was actually kind of like a legislature of the state of Muskogee that he organized. Where did he set up a capital? place called the Stephanoga Bluff on the Apalachicola River, and he declared war on Spain, went to war against Spanish shipping in the Gulf of Mexico, captured San Marcos de Apalach, or Fort St. Marks, in one of the longest Native American sieges of a European fort in American history, and it was successful. So he was a pretty good general for a time and worked pretty well alongside the Seminoles and the Miccosukees who backed him up for a time before he was captured at the Great Creek Council up at Tuckalbachi in what's today Alabama. His influence actually spread around the world. Yeah, it's just a bizarre story. He was born in Maryland. He joined the British military and came by way of the Bahamas down to Pensacola. There are various stories about him, and no one is quite sure what the real one is because he told one his military records indicate something else. There seems to be a general agreement that as a young ensign, he perhaps mouthed off at a superior officer, which in the British military of that day was not the thing to do. In today's military, it's not the thing to do. He was cast out of the British military, and they didn't exactly take you back home, so they threw him out of the British military in Pensacola. He didn't have a way to get home, so not really knowing how far it was back to Maryland, he set off on foot and started walking through the Florida Panhandle on his way back to Maryland and got lost in the pine woods and came across some criminal warriors from the Perryman towns. Now, these towns were located on the lower Chattahoochee River in what is today Jackson County, Florida, and Seminole County, Georgia. They're across from each other up in the Panhandle. And who was this Thomas Perryman? 
Thomas Perryman was a very prominent Seminole leader at that time. He was the head of the Apalachicola River branch of the Seminoles. They took him home with them. They were on good terms with the British. Thomas Perryman kind of liked this guy. He was a teller of tall tales. Everyone liked to sit around the fires at night and listen to good stories, and this guy could tell good stories. He was a young guy. He was still a teenager, but Perryman liked him. He could paint portraits. He could sing. He could play musical instruments. He was very talented, and Perryman took a shine to the guy. He liked him so much so that he let him marry his daughter, Mary. When you married the daughter of a prominent chief, the Seminole people, as were the Muskogee, were a matrilineal society. That put you in pretty good stead in a Seminole town among the Seminole people. So it gave him pretty good influence, even though he was a young man. Word came from the British at Pensacola that they were facing an attack from Allied forces under Bernardo de Gavez, and the Battle of Pensacola was looming, which was a major battle of the American Revolution. Many people do not know this. Galvez's activity was around 1779 to 1781. They requested help from the Seminoles, and so Bowles went back with the Perryman warriors to fight. The Perryman warriors had already been fighting in the American Revolution. In fact, Thomas Perryman was a colonel in the British forces. His son, William, was a captain. They went in support of the British at Pensacola. Bowles went and fought with them. They lost the Battle of Pensacola. Bowles was captured and sent as a prisoner back up the East Coast. The Spanish captured Pensacola, and that was the end of, really, the British Empire on the Gulf Coast. Lo and behold, one thing leads to another. He winds up back down in Florida again and back with family there. He continues to gain influence. He convinces them to let him go to England to represent them to seek support from the crown. He winds up back in England. He convinces them that he is the delegate for the Muscogee Nation. There's a painting of him, a very famous painting of William Augustus Bowles, and he's wearing this kind of a uh, combination of uh, European and Seminole attire that he's created for himself. He has convinced them by this point that he's the emperor of the Muscogee people. And not just of the Muscogee people, but of the Choctaw and the Cherokee and of all of these other tribes all the way to the Canadian border. He has delusions of grandeur, as you might say. This works out great for England. He comes back. Spain convinces them that they want to talk to him because they don't want this guy roaming around the frontier. He goes in to talk with them. They immediately send him to New Orleans, throw him in irons, and send him to Cuba. In Cuba, they send him to Spain. In Spain, they send him to the Philippines as a prisoner. In the Philippines, they don't know what to do with him, really, so they send him back to Spain for trial. The ship wrecks. He escapes, gets to Africa, makes his way back to England. England at that point is at war with Napoleon. He convinces them that he can take Florida from Spain because Napoleon then has possession of Spain. So they send him on a ship, a warship, back to Florida, and they're going to send an entire flotilla to help him. But then different things happen in Europe. It doesn't happen the way he expects. His warship wrecks on St. George Island off the Florida coast. He makes it ashore. Spain sends warships after him on the Apalachicola River. They almost capture him but fail. He, in retaliation, attacks Fort St. Mark's, captures it. Spain is forced to attack Fort St. Mark's to get it back. 
That infuriates him. He declares war on Spain, declares the independent state of Muskogee among the Seminoles of Florida, raises his own flag, and and the rest is history. (laughs) Somebody needs to call Netflix and have them order a miniseries about this guy's life. With all his machinations, he reminds me of the Greek Alcibiades, who was a charming rogue as well. But let's put it in black and white terms. Was he a good guy? Was he a bad guy? That all depends on your point of view. Muscogee didn't like him at all because they considered him a con man. And at that time, Alexander McGillivray was leader among the Muscogee. And they considered him trying to usurp his powers. The Seminole depended on who you talk to. liked him because he overtook the fort and distributed all the presents that he could get his hands on and ammunition. He was bringing in additional trade goods that Panton and Leslie stores couldn't get. They were going along with him for a while. But then he made a mistake. He threatened his father-in-law. His father-in-law was beginning to question some of what he was doing, and his father-in-law was Thomas Perryman, who was a very powerful chief. When he threatened his father-in-law, that was a big no-no. By threatening his father-in-law, then his father-in-law obviously withdrew his support from him. By this point, Bowles had become little more than a pirate. He was commissioning pirate ships out into the Gulf under letters of mark of the state of Muskogee. His pirate ships were going out and seizing ships on the high seas. Spain was after him. Great Britain was after him by this point out of the Bahamas. By this point, quite a few of the Seminoles were even after him. His own brother-in-law, William Perryman, signed an agreement with Spain to seize him in exchange for 2,000 Spanish silver dollars. He still had some Seminoles allied with him, and in fact, his pirate ships, this is interesting to me, his pirate ships were crewed in a large part by Seminole warriors and by maroons or escaped slaves and by rogue pirates and sailors from the Bahamas. Many people don't know this, that many Seminoles were quite good in the seafaring business in the time of the late 1700s, early 1800s. They were sailing these schooners on the high seas for bowls. In fact, his brother-in-law, William Perryman, had a schooner of his own. The Spanish even gave William Perryman a couple of cannon to help him run bowls down. There's a lot of different opinions on who he was and what he was. He definitely had delusions of grandeur. He definitely thought he could set up an empire of his own in Spanish Florida. What became of Bowles after he went to the Grand Council of the Creeks in 1804 to present his case? They seized him, threw him in irons, and turned him over to Spain. They sent him to Cuba. In Cuba, he became convinced that they were trying to poison his food, went on a hunger strike, would only eat, drink orange juice that he squeezed himself, and he basically starved himself to death. And that's what happened to him. A little bit of housekeeping on Bowles. Apparently, he had children by his seminal bride. He did have children. Now, Perryman was definitely Native American, and there are Perrymans among the Seminoles, and there are Perrymans among the Muscogee in Oklahoma. Some of the Perrymans have been primary chiefs of the Muscogee people. Thomas Perryman was primary chief among the Seminoles through the War of 1812 era. Descendants of his have been very prominent chiefs among the Muscogee. Thomas Perryman was the son of an English trader and a Creek woman to being a mat- 
matrilineal society, that made him a very powerful chief. William, by marrying his daughter, gained a great deal of influence. He had children who remained very prominent, and there are bowls who are chiefs and have very prominent status in Native American societies today. He also had children with a wife among the Chickamauga branch of the Cherokee. He also has children among the Cherokee or descendants among the Cherokee as well. And he has descendants who later on during the Trail of Tears, different descendants of his wound up in different places. He has descendants in Texas who live among the Alabama Cushata people. He has descendants among the Seminole, and he has descendants among the Cherokee and among the Muscogee in Oklahoma. Okay, Bowles is certainly a colorful figure to wrap a pirate and heritage festival around. Now, what have you got in store for visitors? We're calling it a Pirate and Heritage Festival because we want to interpret this time period, especially this final time period of his, which was 1799 to around 1804, 1805. What we're going to be doing, we're going to have living history. We'll have a keelboat there, the Ozark, which we bring in occasionally from Arkansas, and we're friends with the crew and the captain of that. I presume it can do double duty as a pirate riverboat for this festival? This is similar to a vessel of the time period that they would have used to bring their cargoes up and down the Apalachicola and Chattahoochee River. What they would have done was bring their schooners in up the river as far as they could have after they would have raided on the Gulf and in the Caribbean. They would have used keelboats like this to bring their illegal booty on up the river. We know from Bowles' records, he was a letter writer extraordinaire, that he did bring cargoes on up the Chattahoochee and Apalachicola rivers as far as today's Alabama and Georgia borders to a place called the Bullies, and the Bully was a criminal chief. And as far as Perryman's town, and he mentions those specifically in his letters. How far is the Three Rivers State Park from the site of Perryman's town? Perryman's town was about five miles by river from where Three River State Park is. We know they would have used vessels like this to do that. So we're bringing that vessel in to simulate what his crews would have done. And we will have crews exactly like the type of pirate crews that he would have used of that time period, made up of Native American warriors, crewmen like the ones from the Bahamas, and some African crewmen like the ones he would have used, which would have been made up of maroon or escaped slaves, or as many people call them, black Seminoles. We want to be able for people to bring their kids out, especially to experience that. So many people, when they think of history, especially African-American people, we want them to know that there was more to it than slavery. We want them to know that there were black Seminoles, that there were maroon freedom fighters, that there were pirates. And the same thing when we talk about American Indians, there was more to it than Plains warriors with the feathered headdresses. We want them to know what Indian history was like in Florida and southwest Georgia and southeast Alabama. Many know about the Seminole Wars of 1817 through 1858, but this was a time period when the Seminoles were even taken to the high seas as members of pirate crews, and that's a bit of Seminole history that many people do not know about, that we're trying to teach about when they were battling against Spanish warships. There was actually a pretty sharp encounter between a couple of of William Bowles's ships 
or schooners and Spanish war galleys in Apalachicola Bay. One of the things we're going to do is to simulate a battle between one of Bowles' vessels and a Spanish soldiers to show what that might have been like. We're also going to have a Seminole encampment. We're going to have some other living history type things of that era, like you would see at any other Seminole War era living history event. We've got people coming in from all over Florida and Creek living history groups from Alabama, Georgia are coming in to join us, as well as some of our standard living history type folks are coming in from Pensacola and Tallahassee and from all around the area. What type of clothes will the living historians be wearing that represents the clothing that people wore, whether that was Indian regalia or a white civilian pioneer? Think more in terms of what you might have seen Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett wear. That's very consistent with what both Native Americans and the frontiersmen were wearing, the hunting shirts, the long hunting shirts, things like that. People on the whites and the Indians were wearing but were probably very similar. How did the living historians intend to portray that era, which is a little foggy even in my mind, and I'm a historian? It's very similar to what the first Seminole War era was like. It hadn't quite reached the decor level of the Second Seminole War yet, the brightness and color and things of that nature that you saw during the Second Seminole War. It is much more of a plain look, but you're starting to see the look that you would see like if people might have been to the Dade battle or some of those reenactments that you see during the Second Seminole War, it's more of a plain look. But you do see Spanish influence. You also are seeing a lot more traditional Seminole Creek influence. There's a lot more linen and cotton influence to it, a lot more European trade influence to it. They're wearing the long shirts. They're wearing your frock coats, things like that. You're not yet seeing so many of the bright colors of the later Seminole time periods yet. People will find it very interesting. You're seeing the turbans and the headwear like that. You're seeing frontier long frock coats, belts and sashes, finger-woven sashes. They're carrying the knives, but not yet the Bowie knives. Bowie knife had not come into existence yet. The knives they're carrying are almost more like a butcher knife, hunting knives. The weapons are all flintlock. There are some cannons we'll be using. We'll be using some swivel guns. Moccasins are pretty much consisted on both sides. Some boots that uh, the sailors might be wearing. There was more trade going on. The manufacturing the United States had developed much more manufacturing of its own by the time of the Second Seminole War. So there was a lot more trade available through U.S. manufacturing by the time of the Second Seminole War. At the time of the First Seminole War, a lot of it was coming from England, and a lot of it, you know, being traded in from England. But also, we're talking about in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there's still a lot of deerskin being worn and buckskin being worn. You're still seeing a lot of beaver pelts being worn, things like that. What you're getting in terms of bright colors is coming in from England or even from India. You're seeing calico and things like that, but you're not really seeing the really brightness that you would see by the time of the Second Seminole War. After drab, I imagine colors were a big hit. 
everyone loved the bright color, but there was a lot of practicality to it. You're talking about in the 1790s, early 1800s, there's still the time of the long hunts. And the long hunts, the creeks would go on, and the Seminoles would still go on these long hunts that would last for months on end, where they would go as far west as the Mississippi River and beyond on their long hunts. This is like they would go west or south and hunt for deer skins by the thousands. This was the big change between the time of the First Seminole War and the Second Seminole War, was they were still trading in deerskin by the thousands to John Forbes and company. That had changed dramatically because the frontier had pushed south in 20 to 30 years. That had wiped out the deer populations to a large degree. There was a practicality to it because you had to carry on your back what you needed for those long hunts. Your linen shirt you wore, you could also use that for patches for your flintlock. Turban, you could unwind that and and spread it out and lay on it. Your frock coat would also be your cover at night. There's a lot of practicality to these things. Your bag would carry everything you needed for a long hunt, and all the lead you were carrying for your long hunt, you're going to carry with you. Also realize that there was a big changeover between, say, the time of William Augustus Bowl around circa 1800 to circa 1830s. And around 1800, everyone is largely still carrying smoothbores to by the 1830s is the time of the rifle. When you think about Native Americans, they're still carrying brown vests to a large extent from 1800 to 1817, whereas by the 1830s, 1840s, you're carrying rifles. It's a big change in terms of weaponry. There's a big change in terms of clothing. There are dramatic changes in there, and it's things that we don't think about today. Then again, when you look at from the time of the Second Seminole War into the 20th century, there's a big change in terms of Seminole and Muscogee clothing and things that people look at, modern Seminole clothing and the stylistics uh, of it people look at that and think that's what they were wearing back in the early 1800s, and it's not. That's why I encourage people to get out and go to these events that represent different eras, and they will learn a great deal at them. Go to the Second Seminole War events. Go to the First Seminole War events, because you're going to learn so much about these different eras of history. And come to this one, because you're going to learn about a completely different era in time. I think we have one that is representing an era that I don't think anyone else really represents. That's what we're so excited about this one, because we're talking about a time when the Seminole were a maritime people. It's interesting to speculate what might have happened had people like Bowles succeeded and had people like Alexander McGillivray's vision succeeded. It might have been a different ballgame, because what Bowles wanted to do was to open an an international port for the American Indians. He and McGillivray up among the Muscogee, they both had a similar vision. Bowles wanted to establish an international port for the Seminole people. And his vision was that this would be a no-duty port where Great Britain or any nation could come in and trade. This would be free of duties from Spain. His goal was to establish this port, be operated by the Seminole people themselves and not by Spain. And McGillivray, to a degree, had the same vision. He wanted a port where the Muscogee would operate the port. Had he not died young, had Bowles not died young, had someone else risen after them with the power to exert American Indian influence and bring all together, 
and defy the United States on one hand and Spain on the other hand, they may have succeeded and said, hey, we're our own people. We'll run our own port, handle this ourselves. We don't need you to handle this for us. It may have been a different situation. They may have been able to hold back the expanding white frontier. Dale, you mentioned the deerskin trade. What destroyed it? The issue with what destroyed the deerskin trade was an expanding U.S. frontier that destroyed the hunting lands, and then that eventually destroyed the deerskin trade. It was not necessarily an issue of overhunting. It was an issue of declining forest lands for hunting. What that meant for the Seminole was as you lost lands for hunting, then you had a declining population of white-tailed deer. With a declining population of white-tailed deer, then you lost the ability for trade. When the United States took over Florida, they no longer abided by the Spanish treaties with the Seminole or with the Muscogee, which said that our territorial rights, and speaking in terms of Spain, our territorial rights only go inland as far as the tidal influence on the rivers. When the United States took over from Spain in 1821, they agreed with Spain that they would abide by all of Spain's treaty obligations and then immediately ignored that treaty obligation. When the United States took over, they said, okay, it's now all ours. Then they forced on the Seminole a new treaty, which was the Treaty of Moultrie Creek, and said, now you must live within these confines. But the original Spanish treaty with the Muscogee said that everything beyond the tidal influences belongs to you, the Muscogee people, which meant that the Seminole had free reign everywhere that was beyond the tidal influences, which basically meant all of Florida. But the United States ignored that treaty obligation. There's an issue there because the Muscogee bartered away part of that. They bartered away what was known as the Forbes Purchase, which the Seminole did not agree to. The Seminole did not concur with the Forbes Purchase. And by the time the Forbes Purchase was signed, which was the 1804-1806 era, the Seminole, by that point, legitimately, I think, considered themselves a separately governed people. And this is after William Augustus Bowles' time period. The Seminole, by that time, had their own government by pretty much all everyone would agree. And they did not concur to the terms of the Forbes Purchase and were very opposed to it. But the Muscogee agreed to it. It didn't matter to them. They weren't down in Florida. And in 1815, the Seminole people rejected a written agreement. Forbes Purchase was today's Apalachicola National Forest. Forbes only occupied a very small portion of it at what is now called Prospect Bluff and another small portion of it on the St. Mark's River. They never sold it. They never occupied it. They never were able to do much with it. They never settled it. If they had ever tried, the Seminoles would have killed anyone who tried to occupy it. It was surveyed to some degree. But in 1815, at the Nichols Outpost Treaty, all the various groups that formed what we know today as the Miccosukee and the old tribes of Florida signed a written agreement that invalidated the Forbes purchase. This is prior to the United States acquisition of Florida from Spain. They notified Spain of that, they notified the United States of that, and they notified Great Britain of that. This was signed by all of the different towns and groups that formed the modern 
tribes as we know them. Spain, in its treaty, which in 1821 turned Florida over to the United States, said that it expected the United States to abide by its treaty obligation with Native Americans, even barring the Forbes Purchase. That would have only excluded an area in the Big Bend region that went between the Apalachicola and the Wakulla St. Mark's Rivers. All of the rest of Florida, by international law, should have belonged to the Seminole people, except for the areas that, by written agreement, had been ceded to Spain or the areas inland as far as the tidal influences on the rivers. I'm still fascinated by this idea of Seminoles out on the high seas. It's very interesting. Some of them continued, William Perriman, for example, he continued to sail back and forth to the Bahamas on up until the time of the War of 1812, at least. He refused after Bowles' time to give his cannons back to Spain. He kept them. There are mentions of him being in the Bahamas during the War of 1812, arriving there on his schooner. He died during the First Seminole War. He was killed in a battle during the First Seminole War. What became of his cannons is not known. His schooner later wound up in the hands of another Seminole who continued to sail it at least until about 1818. Most of them continued to live in North Florida, at least up and through the time of the First Seminole War. They fade away after that. There's not much mention of them in the records after about 1821. My assumption is that they continue to live and be part of the different groups of the Seminole people. Some of them probably wound up in South or Central Florida. Some of them probably rejoined the Muskogee people up in Alabama. They were very seasoned sailors, definitely knew what they were doing. I think were probably among some of the best mariners on the Gulf Coast and in the Caribbean in their day. One thing will really interest you is that in the art center in Apalachicola, which is a refurbished old warehouse, there is a toe there that was found in the Apalachicola River. It's up to date from the late 1700s, which would be the, the era of the Seminole sailors, and it is 54 feet long and would have definitely been used, at least in the Gulf of Mexico, and is carved out of a single cypress log. What were these ships like? They weren't just huge dugout canoes or keelboats. We know that William Perryman had a schooner, and so these would have been just like these coastal schooners that were used in Florida all the way up into the 20th century. They were probably two-masted schooners, much like the Spanish and the British used in their days in Florida, and Americans too. They were small coastal schooners. They were probably up to maybe 50, 60 feet long. They had cargo holds, and they could sail them back and forth to Cuba and to maybe New Orleans and Pensacola and to the Bahamas. They could trade. They would carry whatever commodities they might have to trade with and then bring back in items for trade. We know that the Perryman family, they ran several trading posts up and down the Chattahoochee and Apalachicola rivers of their own. They would bring back commodities from the Bahamas to trade with their little trading posts that they ran up and down the rivers. We know that when the Creek War broke out in 1813 in Alabama, William Perryman showed up in the Bahamas to request British military aid. That is actually what led to the British military intervention in the Gulf Coast. We know that they would sail down and bring back arms and ammunition when they needed it. We know they would fish in the Gulf and various things. They had a variety of types of vessels. They had little hooners and coastal smacks, they called them, and things like that. So they were pretty active sailors. But we also know that all the way back to early Spanish exploration, they were taking large canoes, and we're talking about canoes on which they could carry 50 or 60 people. 
and sailing across Florida Straits to Caribbean islands. And it was common. They were very good navigators. This is not something that was a recent thing for the Seminoles. We know that the earlier Indians of Florida were navigating across the Florida Straits. Who is Ferris Pell, and what are his contributions to this festival? Ferris is Creek Indian, and Ferris has been long, long involved for many, many decades in helping to explain what life was like. He was long involved in working with school groups up in Alabama and in the panhandle of Florida. The years have passed by a lot, but he used to participate in the Dade battle for many years. He works a lot with school groups, and he used to work with the scouts a lot. He helps to teach about what authentic clothing was like for the Seminoles and the Creeks in the area. It's kind of up to about the 1830s. He's a master when it comes to making frock coats, making attire for the early Seminole and Creek time periods. Some of the finest frock coats out there are ones that Ferris Powell made. In fact, people pay a significant amount of money to get frock coats that he has made. They're just beautiful pieces of work. He's a true artist when it comes to those. He is an expert in teaching people how to make leggings, how to make moccasins, how to do the leather work, how to make the frog coats. He's gone to the Smithsonian and studied originals. He's looked at the stuff in the British Museum, in the Gilcrease in Oklahoma, and has traveled to Canada to look at original pieces that are in the museums up there. He'll be there, and he participates with us at the annual Scott event, at other events that we do. He's a real expert at it, and I think people will enjoy meeting and talking with him. He's one of the finest craftsmen when it comes to making reproduction of early Seminole and Creek attire. What does Ed Williams bring to the table, or in this case, the festival? Ed's an old salt. Ed spent a long, long time sailing the high seas, and Ed and his crew actually built a keel boat. It is the Ozark, A-U-X-A-R-C. It is an authentic keel boat built on the design of one from 1804. They have sailed this keel boat, I don't know, probably close to a thousand miles on rivers all over the country now. It was built to reproduce one used in explorations on the rivers of Arkansas. They take it and each year they travel on rivers around the country to demonstrate what these keelboats were like, how they navigated them, how they were handled. And in the process of doing that, they've become quite expert at handling them. They've even sunk at a time or two and, and brought it back up. They have been on the Mississippi, the White River, the Arkansas, the Missouri, the Apalachicola, the Chattahoochee, the Flint, Pensacola Bay, the Escambia, numbers of other rivers. They will have it there, and they have a great deal of expertise on keelboats and flatboats and the types of boats that were used during the late 1700s and early 1800s. They are with the Early Arkansas Living History Association. They come down and they participate with us in Alabama and Mississippi and Florida of the 200th anniversary of the transfer of Florida from Spain to the United States. They took part in the transfer of the flags of Pensacola. They take part in our about 1817 reenactment that Lieutenant Scott was on, and we attack it each year. To my knowledge, the only reenactment of an amphibious Seminole War battle that is done each year. We've had to delay it the last couple of years due to COVID, but we will have it back again this year. Our Seminole and Red State Creek warriors attack the keelboat as it comes up the Apalachicola River. We have soldiers from the 7th Infantry on there that we attack and annihilate each year to reenact the first Seminole victory of the Seminole Wars. What are the specs on this keelboat? 
It is 38 feet long. We will have it in the water to lead a regatta up the lake to the site, and we will do a battle land versus river. But then we will have it up where there will be a gangplank where visitors can go up and visit it. People will be able to go aboard and see it and everything. It is a full-size keelboat. It's pretty astounding the amount of tonnage it's able to carry, and it has a cabin on it and everything, so people will be able to see it. What does Terry Lambert offer at this festival? Terry Lambert is a Muskogee. Terry also participates in living history with us. Terry is a warrior. Terry takes part in a number of living history events, ranging from Fort Mims to the Scott Battle. I think he goes down and participates in the Dave Battle occasionally. I think Burncorn Creek. I know he was at Thunder on the Three Notch. I saw him last year, which is an event that takes part up in Troy. He roams all over to events and to living history events. I've seen him at stomp dances and other things. The same kind of thing. He wants people to learn about culture, helps teach language classes, to teach the Muskogee language, and the same types of things. He wants people to learn a reverence for the land, for the language, and for Native American history. Dale, you are a Native American. How does that inform what you do as a living historian and how you approach these type of events. I am of Yuchi descent. My grandmother was one of the last original people who could speak the Yuchi language. In fact, there were fewer than two dozen who could speak Yuchi. She was one of those. Her mother was on the doll's roll. There were very few people left who could speak the Yuchi language, as we pronounce it. It was a dying language. There were very few left. My ancestors fought in the Creek Wars. They fought in the First Seminole War, fought in the Creek War of 1836 to we call it the Creek War of 1836 to 1848 because it continued that long. Their names were Browns, which the Brown name is still very common in, among the Muscogee people and among the Seminole of Oklahoma. And I lived for a time out in Oklahoma. There are many of uh, my ancestors were Yuchi, and the Yuchi are common in the Seminole of Florida, of Oklahoma, and among the Muscogee. They were present in Bowles' time and later and in more recent times. I've long been involved in researching and studying and writing history, and I got involved in this many years ago. And so I take part in it and have taken part of it here since moving to Florida to try to teach people that, as the Uchi say, we are still here, which means that they are here in the recognized tribes, but also we want people to know, we want children to know, especially the school kids to know, that as you walk this land, walk it with reverence for the people who were here before you. By having reverence, that means that every day as you walk the land, walk it with reverence and a remembrance that you're paying honor to the people who walked this land before you did, before you, because it's a special place that you have inherited. And the way to do that is by understanding that there is a rich culture and a rich history here. And that means that you should treat the land with respect, that you should remember the people who came before you, that you should remember the events that took place here, and that you should take care to preserve the, the special places that are here. And the way you do that is by learning about these events, by learning about the people, and by preserving. And, of course, the Seminole War Foundation is a great way to do that, and we encourage, and I encourage people to join, to learn the history, 
And to come out to events like this one, like our Pirate and Heritage Festival or the Scott event or the Day Battle or the other events that you sponsor, it's a great way to learn and then to visit sites that are being preserved, but also to engage in helping to preserve sites yourself. Don't go out and dig things up. Show respect. Learn about the federally recognized tribes, but also just because a site is not owned by a federally recognized tribe, that doesn't mean go out and destroy it. It means show respect. And the way you learn to show respect is by coming out to these events. And that's a first step to learning history. Learning history is not in the past. History is here with us today. We haven't discussed Three Rivers State Park. Tell us about that. Three Rivers State Park was hit just, I mean, just, just, point blank by Hurricane Michael. Hurricanes, unless you, as Floridians know, unless you're dead on hit by a hurricane, you tend to forget about them within a year or two. South Florida people remember Andrew. Hurricane Michael was a Category 5 that hit in the panhandle in October of 2018. Unless you drive through this area today, you kind of it slipped out of your mind by now. But it just leveled an area of the panhandle. Every pine tree across about a 50-mile stretch of the Florida panhandle was snapped off. Three River State Park and Florida Cavern State Park were two state parks in this region. They lost about 90 to 95 percent of their tree cover is, is an example of what it did to them. It just leveled these state parks. Three Rivers has rebuilt from this hurricane. It is a beautiful park. It's on high bluffs overlooking a 37,000 acre lake. And it was a real struggle for this park to rebuild. Philip and Jesse have done a tremendous job, park manager and a ranger there at the park of rebuilding. And it's a beautiful place. And even though it lost a lot of tree cover, they've replanted the trees, they've built trails, and it's on these high bluffs. And you have this beautiful view of the sparkling blue lake out there. This is going to be the first really big event since the hurricane hit this park. What we're trying to do is to bring in a large crowd of people to see what this park is now that it's been rebuilt since the hurricane. It's a chance for people to come and see the new Three Rivers State Park, to enjoy it, to enjoy something that it wasn't before, which is now from these high hills, which you normally don't get in Florida. You can see this magnificent view of this lake, and it really is like looking across a bay out there. You're high up. you got this beautiful breeze coming off this lake. We're going to have a boat regatta out there which you don't normally get in inland Florida. We're going to have history on these high hills overlooking the lake. We're going to have a festival with live music and, of course, history and a battle and all of that. We're also going to have food and crafts and vendors and all kinds of things. It's also a chance to get out and explore the mountain bike trails and hike some trails that kind of will prep you for the Appalachian Trail if you're into that kind of thing. There's a great RV hookup type campground there, kind of place where you can launch a boat, get out and explore a massive lake that borders three states. We also are going to unveil our documentary on William Augustus Bowles, a lot of other things. So it's a great time to come and see a part of Florida you might not have seen before. And if you want to make a weekend of it, you can also visit Florida Caverns, which is only about 15 minutes away, and it's the only public tour cave in Florida, so you can go see that as well. 15 minutes away is Chattahoochee River Landing, which is the Scott Battlefield, which is a Seminole War battlefield, and there are restored Native American mounds there and all kinds of things you can do right in the immediate vicinity. Dale, how do you find out more? 
it's on Facebook, Pirate and Heritage Festival, and it's a Facebook site that is open to everyone. You don't have to be a member of Facebook to see it. It's also going to be on the State Park page, so if you go to floridastateparks.com, you'll be able to get the information right there on the Three Rivers State Park page. Dale Cox, once again, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Absolutely. I've had a great time. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.